0: Hello, everyone. I'm back. Only Paul here this time with Cinematic Underdogs, and Matt Belenke is joining me. We're doing an Oscar special, Oscar extravaganza. I'm really excited. It's going to be perfect timing for the 2024 Oscars, almost 20 years to the date we're kind of covering, but not quite. I think it's 19 years. We're going to cover Million Dollar Baby, the 2005 Best Picture winner. And before I get into any icebreakers, just welcome to the pod, Matt.
1: Hey, Paul. Thanks for having me. Excited to be on. I think this is my fourth time now and I feel uh, like an honorary guest at this point. And I look forward to these podcasts. Sometimes like it's like you're a former player of a team playing up against them. You you look for those games a little bit more than other ones. And uh, I look for these pods for sure. Just uh, s- sports and movies. There's no better combination out there.
0: Love it. I love it. We always love having you on Matt. And yeah, you are like, the free agent the perennial free agent he's mad is like the superstar podcast guest his appeal is so much that it, whenever i see him on someone else's pod, i'm immediately like oh i'm definitely checking that out so, like he was recently on our good friends at the unwatchables um and you covered two great films right what, what films did you cover for that one
1: yeah that that was an awesome episode with uh we covered two s craig zoller movies so uh Brawl in cell block 99 and then bone tomahawk and uh i i didn't know the, at the time but both the unwatchables hosts co-hosts are uh they live in akron ohio which isn't far away from pittsburgh hometown of lebron james actually akron ohio yeah so that was pretty
0: neat i forgot that yeah i was on there once and i had a blast with both of them you know they've been on here a few times actually got to get them back on soon yeah. great podcast um to kick things off for our icebreaker we want to kind of Delve into the Oscars of 2005, the year that Million Dollar Baby took the big prize, and kind of look at the way all these films aged, right? Because there's always so much debate, as Matt and I both know, right? We're we're big, you know, ex Twitter heads. Kind of um, that sounded a weird, saying right? I sound like we're like post Twitter. I'm still running into language problems here, but. Anyways, we're, we're hyper online, we see the discourse, we're embroiled in it for better or worse, probably for worse. But you know, this is pre-social media, but still, like this is when Oscars maybe even had a stronger impact on society as a whole. Like It was more of a hegemonic thing where we had less indie film, we had less proliferation. It hadn't disseminated and distributed into these little nooks and crannies of the culture, like I'm talking about cinemas as, as a whole right now. You know, it felt a little more consolidated at this time. And the Oscars were like an event for every household, like the Super Bowl. And as we all know, ratings have flailed and whimpered recently. You know, it still packs a punch, but it's not quite the same. And so what's interesting, right, is that the zeitgeist is strong, right? We're daily debating films online, usually from these years, like 2004, 1999, or whatever. And what was prestigious, receiving all the accolades back then, is perceived very differently in many situations than what is lauded today and what is critiqued today. So as we all know, I'm being very, I don't know the quiet word. I, I guess I'm speaking to the choir for anyone who's probably listening. We all know this, stating the obvious, but I think it's going to be a really exciting thing to just like think about where Million Dollar Baby sits today in comparison to all these films. So for you, Matt. We have a lot on this list, right? I guess a good way, place to start off, right, is just to look at the other Best Picture nominees. And there are, you know, quite a few that I saw in theaters at the time. And, oh, it's such a perfect, I think, ensemble of films that, for me, represent this period, this year in film. Because I saw, now I'm realizing every single one, probably in that winter season, and I feel like Million Dollar Baby sits in a very strange spot in retrospect. So we've got the Aviator, we got Finding Neverland, we have Ray, we have Sideways, and we have Million Dollar Baby. And how about this? To start it off, let's do a ranking. I know, I know I'm putting you on the spot, but like what would be your choice for best picture winner this year?
1: Out of the nominees. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I think sideways has to be. And uh, that was kind of one of those diamond in the rough hits, right? I listened to some Paul Giamatti interview recently where he was like shocked that that movie did as well as it did, right? And uh, sales of uh, Marlowe, I think, spiked uh, ridiculously after that movie was released. And it's kind of like a character study. And the leading men in the movie are all four leading actors are, you know, kind of nobodies. Like Thomas Hayden Church was like a radio actor and he had small bit parts in movies. Um, He was on commercials people kind of knew his face, but he never really had a leading role in a Alexander Payne movie. And I think Payne had like a blank check to make that movie after election. So, and and Paul Giamatti is another guy who, I forget what year American Splendor came out. That might've been maybe after or or right before, but uh, Paul Giamatti was another guy who kind of paid his dues in Hollywood. But again, that was his sort of first time on a critical stage of uh, being a leading man in like this, you know, acclaimed indie movie. And then you had Virginia Madsen from Candyman from the early 90s and Sandra Oh from Grey's Anatomy. And I guess that was mid, that was right in the peak of Grey's Anatomy, right? That was like, every girl in my high school uh, wanted to be a doctor because of Grey's Anatomy. And they were just obsessively watching that show. And I liked Ellen Pompeo because she was an old school. She was like Luke Wilson's girlfriend in that for a hot minute. But I mean, Sideways is might be in my like top 20 favorite movies ever, maybe top 15. I uh, I, I really love that movie. It's about a lot of things, and yet, kind of nothing at all, and that's the beauty of it. But Payne's script that he co-wrote, and kind of the the foursome in that movie, the the chemistry is just like off the charts, and there's something magical about the energy. I would go, I would go sideways one, and I would go, The Aviator two. I haven't seen Ray or Finding Neverland. I mean, I remember seeing Finding Neverland maybe on TV, and I've seen maybe some scenes of Ray, but I wasn't really interested in seeing either. But I did see The Aviator in theaters that I remember fondly. And um, it was one of those movies, like Scorsese did that a lot with his films where the last third of the movie would just be the leading character in complete turmoil and descent. And um, that happens to Leo DiCaprio in that because he plays Howard Hughes. And I feel like maybe the flaw of Aviator... Well, you know now looking back at aviator i think i like it a lot more now and i think critics have also sort of come around on that film um more so than they had the first time i mean that cast is is magical in it um blanchette plays Catherine hepburn and she has incredible in that movie kate beckinsale ava gardner but uh but yeah i, I think sideways aviator and then the other one i saw which is a million dollar baby which i saw parts of i think when i was younger i hadn't really seen it all the way through until now. And I kind of wanted to see what the hype was about with, with Million Dollar Baby, because it's it's one of the three only sports movies to win Best Picture ever in the history of the Oscars, the others being Chariots of Fire in 1981 and uh, Rocky in 76. I mean, th- that honor in itself is significant. And there have been sports films that are, were nominated mm-hmm. uh, for Best Picture, but you know, winning is a different thing. And uh and how it won I mean this movie basically swept it was one of those sounds the lambs no country for old men uh Lord of the Rings type experiences where once the train gets moving it's guns off or whatever uh, metaphor we can use but w- weird uh, nomination year because I'm looking at uh 2004 movies in general you know Kill Bill volume two I don't know how that doesn't get nominated all the way through, it's an incredible movie, and it, and it should have been The Dreamers, which was uh, 03, 04, of the Line, was a 03 release in Europe, and then 04 in, in the States. Closer, the um, Mike Nichols movie is pretty good. I'm looking at some of the other ones here. Spider-Man 2 was great. Uh, as someone who doesn't like Marvel movies, typically, I thought it was really good. And uh, The Assassination of Richard Nixon, another solid one with, with Sean Penn. So overall, I mean fairly decent year and it, passion of the christ the terminal so there there are you know quality movies in the year and and uh it's funny what gets like the the nominees that came out for best picture for that year felt very oscars yeah. in a way right because array it's a biopic it, it makes a lot of money it's about this re- revered and um well-liked uh musical legend and uh finding neverland is kind of that's a complete outlier. I have no idea how that got in there,
0: <laughs> but I think it actually works with what you're saying. Uh, and I saw that in theaters, and I was under the spell of like Oscar bait at that period in my life. You know, I was it was a big year for me. So it actually now I'm thinking back personally, right? And this is the year where I left my emo screamo bands that I was in for four years, and I loved cinema at that time. But I like saw the cinema through the lens of like a musician, where it was like a lot of like I like the style and the panache. And when I left my bands and decided I was going to focus more on school and academia and so forth, senior year of high school, I got really into writing and reading and novels and all that. So I'm really in the screenwriters mode this year. So this is actually a great film for that because, you know, Paul Haggis at this period was like the golden child of the screenwriters, which is funny because if you look at his resume, it's tiny. (laughs) It's pretty much this and then Crash. And one of the things I thought going into this, I thought Crash was before this film. It's actually the year after this film. So this is his breakout film. I had no idea. And I I, if, I didn't even know. So after I watched this, because he's the executive producer, one of them on this film. So this is really his like, I mean, I, I know he did TV work before and he even directed like a film and wrote it like, I think a decade before, but this was his like big arrival on the prestige stage of, mm-hmm. of Hollywood. Um, but yeah, this year it's funny, right? We have Jonathan Glazer's birth right? A huge phenomenon now, right? Because right. of his career. I mean, it completely overlooked at the time. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which was beloved back then. But I mean, best picture, I, I would still choose that today over any of these choices. Personally, I'm a big fan of that as um, pigeonholed as it is, as like the millennial hipster movie, the Charlie Kaufman movie, whatever, this twee, um, you know, sci-fi sentimental thing. It was groundbreaking at the time. And really, it holds together. I watch that like every four years. And I do enjoy it every time I watch that film. Uh, Vera Drake came out this year. The Mike Leigh film, great film. Closer, great film. I love Closer. Clive Owen and Natalie Portman. I mean, that was a sultry one. I remember seeing them in the dollar movies, being blown away, like mind blown. And before I get too deeply into the peripheral films, I also want to Grade my best picture winners, which I saw them all. As I noted, I saw them all in theaters. I saw them all with my parents as well. So this is a big year of like me going with my parents, and I definitely also put Sideways as number one. A glorious film, one of the best screenplays of the 21st century. Uh, definitely like one of the best middle brow mainstream screenplays. Yeah, uh, the the Merlot, the Merlot line. I think my dad brings up every time Merlot ends up on the table, and so does yeah. Jordan, who can't be here today. Uh, But he's always, you know, at the bachelor party or whatever saying, I'm not drinking any fucking Merlot (laughs) and we all just die laughing. It's just like an all-time line now. And uh, I always loved as a kid, uh, as an aspiring writer that year especially, that poignancy of drinking that very fancy wine that sat for years and has so much meaning to him in a burger joint at the end. The like jokes that build into a punchline with um, him drinking from the like wine spittle just the whole buddy comedy aspect of that film is so good. And I love that you brought up all the actor actors and actresses in that as well. Because they are a lot of like quote unquote B-level actors and actresses, not super famous, but, but beloved ones who are consistent. Um, Sandra O, oh, I thought of because we're covering Million Dollar Baby, and we both did uh some research into girl fight, and I was watching the first part of girlfight i thought of catfight which is a great yeah. little indie film with sandra oh and i was wondering could catfight be considered a sports movie in a crazy alternative universe because it actually in some ways reminded me of girlfight it has like this big angst to it but no very different uh beasts those two films uh, you know one's just like a personal vendetta feud film that's played for like dark humor and the other one is turns into a boxing film right girlfight is a legit boxing film um so Before I get too much on a tangent, my next one after Sideways would be The Aviator as well. So I think we're really aligned here. I I love The Aviator. I'm a big fan of the Aviator. I think it's one of Scorsese's sadly overlooked movies. Like it's it was huge. And I feel like everyone considers it this like big kind of spectacle film. It's kind of got a a little bit of a formulaic traditional biopic broadness to it, right? It's a long film. It's almost three hours, I believe. I remember sitting through it in theaters, Um, but it's just so regal. It's so loud and bombastic. And then it spirals into this super dark space, you know, and it gets into Howard Hughes's OCD and the way he's like pissing into urine jars and leaving them out his door and watching like films and growing his fingernails. And to me, it was this really interesting portraiture of a mad scientist slash artist going mad. And I felt like it, actually would play pretty well into like all these notions of Scorsese as just like there's a reflexivity there. I felt like the element of that film that had to do with artistry and the thin line of artistry and madness was, I think, it's often left unexplored when people talk about that movie. And that's like the main thing I even took away when I first saw it. And that's how I always think of that film, first and foremost, which you kind of brought up. So I was stoked about that. That last hour to me is like the film, right? And the setup is great because the setup of that movie, forget what decade it actually is, but is it like the Roaring Twenties, right? It's this like opulent, decadent time. There's all these great social balls and, you know, parties. And he's this great engineer and aeronautic, superstar pushing forward. And, you know, the scene where he builds a big plane and they they take off is just, it's really rousing. It has this like Oppenheimer-like momentum. And then whereas Oppenheimer turns into this like, sort of legal thing in the last hour, the aviator turns into uh, this like naval gazing, very bleak kind of cautionary tale, a reclusive artist, right? Who's eating himself from like the inside out because of his I I think like an overabundance of intelligence almost. So anyways, I love that movie. I still like it. And next, I would say, would be Million Dollar Baby. It's actually a pretty weak best picture. So I think we'll be a little critical of this film. I'm I'm curious to see where we're going to actually come out at the end of this episode after we discuss it. Uh, But it's definitely better than Finding Neverland and Ray. Those two are interchangeably bad to me. I remember loving Finding Neverland when I saw it in theaters. But now as I think about it, it's so cloying. It's a Mark Forster film and Johnny Depp's in it. And it's also about the author, the artist, right? It's it's the story of the writer. Um, and I always love that angle in things when you take like a popular product and look at it through the creation of it and learn about the life and how that interacts with the making of it. I always think that's a little bit more interesting than just a pure remake so i'll give it that it's not terrible i'm kind of curious to watch it again but i remember it even then being quite maudlin in its tone very treacly and i i can only imagine if i thought of it in that manner then what it would feel like now cuz i remember million dollar baby came off to me as like very sober and very exacting like a very unflinching hard-nosed exploration of this tragic Plot. And it is that. It has that. It has the Clint Eastwood coldness, the clinical eye that he has, right? But it also came off as a bit cloying to me on a rewatch. And mm-hmm. so that's what's insane about this movie uh, that I I couldn't believe I didn't notice these things as a young viewer, like the whole Jay Baruchel character that feels like he's part of such a juvenile sports Type movie in my opinion, he's such a caricature to me. You know, he's comedic sidekick there for laughs. He's kind of like the donkey in Shrek to mm-hmm. a degree. I get it on one level, but you're you're going after this like Shawshank Redemption style tone, and the two ingredients don't fuse for me. They're they're very atonal. That was so resonant for me throughout this viewing. And just the level of idolatry that we are trained to both watch and listen to Morgan Freeman as a narrator of a film in this time period, right? This reverence toward that voice, and it still exists today. That sort of authorial tone, right? He is this this pillar of like godlike. Yes, right. There, there's a there's a a piety. He's omniscient, right? Like even though he's not, they implant him in in the most like absurd ways. He's always lurking in the shadows. And if you think about his character in that sense, he is like a creep in this movie. Like so, even, you know, the the contravance of him living in the gym helps a lot to make him always there and present. But uh, there's almost an absurdist quality in which he's always lurking and voyeuristically observing whatever's going on, so that he can actually see um so that they can actually have a alibi for why he's able to give us this <laughs> sweeping narration this omniscient overview of the story that mm-hmm. I found quite laughable um but by this point in his career I just watched the latest Zach Braff film with Florence Pugh I think it's called A Good Person and he's also in that and he has some narration he bookmarks the film right with this like a sweeping monologue mm-hmm and i hate to say it but you just can't do that anymore with morgan freeman i feel like you have to move on unless you subvert it in some sense because it's, it's just a tired
1: trope. Yeah. yeah it's
0: a tired trope it immediately dates your film and i'm not saying he was once great at that i'm not saying he's like the maybe most recognizable voiceover actor in the modern era if not ever and rightfully deserved that that pedestal but mm. at this point like if you're writing a film you got to got to, I think, circumvent casting him in that, or you're turning your film into just this this tired, as you said, trope. So back to my top five, to round it out, Ray and Finding Neverland interchangeable to me. Ray was fun because of Jamie Foxx as Ray Charles. And that year had a lot of excitement. I remember him performing at the Oscars, right? I mean, he was great at that time. I love Jamie Foxx, actually. We love Any Given Sunday. We love Miami Vice. And, you know, he really inhabited that role. But as we see today, even, right, we, it's hit or miss, but Hollywood absolutely loves like musical biopics with A-list actors in a very mythic, tragic plot or screenplay, right? Like Bohemian Rhapsody <laughs> treatment is what it got that year. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, Renee Zellweger won a few years ago for a film almost nobody watched. Right. Right.
1: Right? Uh, and I can't remember the name of that. No. Yeah, exactly. I know. That's why I tried to
0: play it off, but I can't remember the name of that one either. Yeah. Uh, and I watched it <laughs> within the past five years. So, But I do also love the fact that you brought up that this is the third sports film to win a Best Picture, which I find fascinating, right? And two are kind of clumped together right there. 77 with Rocky and mm-hmm. what was it? uh Chariots of Fire One in the early 80s. Yep. 81, 81. yeah. 81. And... Definitely not a huge fan of Traits of Fire. It's fine film, serviceable. Rocky, you know, is Rocky. It's a thing unto itself. It's hard to even discuss Rocky or think about Rocky in a rational, objective manner. I mean, there's no objectivity. I'll be the first to say that when it comes to art. I actually recently went on a rant when Christopher Nolan was awarded at the Screenwriters Guild Awards and gave this like speech. About how, like the real good critics, you know, strive for objectivity. And I was just like really having issues with his rhetoric there. I yeah. feel like the great critics just strive for authenticity and a reflexive honesty. Mm-hmm. this This notion of objectivity to me is very laughable. And it's very Christopher Nolan, who's at once like the most surrealistic director. And in the other sense, he's so analytic and he's so like logical. He's this weird mixed anomaly to me. But I, I was palavering about that, and it was a nice speech, by the way. I, it was very entertaining, and I—that's my whole thing for a speech. Like yeah. was fighting about the Jay Z speech, and I come down on the the pendulum of was it entertaining? Because award shows are nonsense, anyways. And it was, you know, it was hell of entertaining. So win win some for me. Um, anyways, I'm rambling a bit. And for you, I, I, out of these best pictures, the three. Let's also let's continue some rankings. It's a good way to just organize conversation what's your number one I'm guessing I'm gonna even put it in your mouth is it Rocky
1: oh out of, out of those three yeah um yeah for sure Rocky and just because Stallone wrote it mm-hmm. um stars in it and it changed the movie trajectory of, of what it means to be I think a sports movie in, in a way right it uh, it led into an influence of hundreds of not hundreds of dozens of copycats or the template for what it means to make a good sports movie changed the the meaning of kind of heroism in films and uh, how the Oscars, I think, looks at that. And also, it was the birth of a star, uh, of the the next great star, and it kind of foreshadowed the type of actor that would lead the 80s, which was this uh, macho, big time figure with uh, kind of quippy phrases and quotations, who's capable of taking on a small town, whether it's First Blood or Rambo, right? There was a certain moment that Rocky caught wind of. And it in many ways, it feels both a 70s movie, but it was one of the forward-thinking 70s films, whereas a lot of those other ones were, were very of that time. And it was only that time w- where a lot of those Hal Ashby uh, or Robert Altman movies could exist in. So in that respect, I think what it, what it meant for cinema, what Rocky meant, and uh, the fact that it's still it's iconic, right? It's a movie that people will still go to Philadelphia and run and do the the steps and the music you know about it. R- rarely is the musicality associated with a film as strongly as it is with Rocky and Eye of the Tiger, all, th- all that stuff that there's a a certain timelessness to what Rocky is and what it meant. And that's why it has lasted this long. And uh, Chariots of Fire, I think I saw that once also when I was younger. I'd like to rewatch it. It, it didn't really have a strong effect on me. But Million Dollar Baby, and, and perhaps we can just dive right into it now. Yeah, looking back at Paul Haggis, his work, Next Three Days, which he wrote and directed, which is filmed in Pittsburgh, might be my favorite movie of his. It's just like a film that Jaume Coletcero would do, only not as well as him. But it, it stars Russell Crowe and, he, and Elizabeth Banks and Elizabeth Banks goes to Fort Pitt prison in downtown Pittsburgh and Russell Crowe has like a plan to get her out of it and he goes to Liam Neeson for advice on how to do it and there's a great like quote Liam Neeson just like Pittsburgh it's a tough town and he just just rambles on about nonsense but looking at at his filmography that movie is kind of like that's one of those B action movies that is literally defunct now like the those don't exist because I feel like it's either John Wick, it's either some kind of franchise, Mm -hmm. action franchise that's well known, or I don't know, it's nothing, right? Like Even Den of Thieves was four or five years ago now at this point. But yeah, Million Dollar Baby, it's such a strange movie because in many ways, it is Oscar bait and it is an Oscar movie because it's a sports story, it's tragic. The last third almost feels like the last third of The Aviator. I, I feel like there's a lot of symmetry there between the films. But as far as I'm concerned on watching it, as soon as Hilary Swank's character gets injured, the movie is over, for, From at least from a storytelling perspective. I, I just feel like where it goes after that is just A, predictable for the most part, B, also it's it's funny to watch this movie and remember that there was a fetish of hillbilly culture and mm. rednecks at this mm. time with, with the Oscars, right? You think back to Monster with Charlize or Monster's Ball with Halle Berry and Billy Bob. Uh, or even I, Tanya recently, or I guess Brokeback wasn't far from this movie's release. um, There was this sort of uh, almost like caricature, you you used that word earlier with and that's spot on, because I feel like Clint Eastwood does that a lot in his later work. Like late stage Clint is very much stereotyping, I think, a lot of characters and social stratas. That's kind of what he started to do more of as he got older, and uh, it its all—it's always this kind of growly, grizzled, out of touch, seemingly vet versus like the ne'er do well uh, underlings. These these young punks. I mean, like the whole Margo Martindale, who's fantastic, but you know she plays uh, Hilary Swank's mom in the movie, and there's a couple scenes like where we, we get the point—they grew up in a trailer park and they really could care less about their daughter. But then he kind of harps on this point more where they try to like steal her money or get her to sign something in the will and there's some incredible first of all direction but also lighting in this film and Mm -hmm. kind of shot selection and staging is pretty spectacular especially looking at clint's filmography and then the types of movies he did in the 90s were which felt more um kind of genre exercises and action and and uh, thrillers or kind of conspiracy thrillers and 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 action flicks which I like more. I like when he does the crime movie of the week type thing, you know, like Absolute Power or True Crime. I think those are really just like solid TNT TBS on a Sunday afternoon. Whereas, you know, when he goes for the Oscar movie, which I think he did in Mystic River but it lands harder there. I think it wor- that movie the screenplay and the kind of structure feels more affecting. I feel like here it just wears him down and kind of holds the movie down because it's there needs to be or feels like there needs to be some sort of trajectory of the character and as soon as she gets injured it's like i'm not sure even if if i'm buying like the the whole biblical undertones right and 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 the um, spirituality of it but it doesn't feel earned and that's that's my biggest gripe is that despite really great performances and uh morgan freeman again as we talked about the voiceover stuff, I almost like didn't mind it because the movie was like so dull and, and rote at that point in the last third. I was like, oh, okay, at least someone's like talking and speaking eloquently. But Barishel, who's typically great, he felt miscast in this movie, like like gets someone else who can maybe provide more of a spark in that role, which does feel kind of satirized to to the film's detriment. And there's that random, you know, kind of strange fight between him and Anthony Mackie where Morgan Freeman has to punch him out it just it's a really odd movie I feel like it's a really strange movie and on one hand it is Oscar bait o- on the other hand it, it just feels like it, no bait right it, it feels very very stunted and it feels like a cop out of a film that's what it felt like but you know Hillary Swank Oh, uh, the other kind of um, hillbilly cultural movie was *Boys Don't Cry*, right? Which she which she was in, mm-hmm. um, and and won an Oscar. I mean, that that I like that movie a lot more. But yeah, this I don't know how you feel about it. Where this stacks up with uh, with Eastwood's kind of career or his arc, but uh, you know, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that.
0: Yeah, that, what's fascinating is he's playing on a lot of his archetypes in a new way. I think I think that's one of the more interesting parts of watching this film. Right, he's a different type of curmudgeon in this, but he's still a curmudgeon. Uh, He's still the straight shooter. He's still terse, jaded, um, coarse, but also refined, right? He has an air of arrogance, a patriarchal authority, right? Like a a strong sense of masculinity. So he's thrown into a lot of the archetypal shades or contours that he normally fits into. But there's something a little unique about this one, right? He's, He's a little washed up. He's a little ragged. He's a little downtrodden. He's sad in a different way, right? Like I'm thinking of like his era of Gran Torino, right? Where he's just like the raging neighborhood sort of racist and the, or like the mule. I mean, he, he's he's so good at playing these, at finding a new way to reiterate. And I mean like this in the sense of to reinvent himself in something that feels very Clint eastwood yet new. And I do think this fits well into his filmography in that sense. Um, I think, as you noted, the cinematography in this film is gorgeous, as most of his films are. And it's very aligned with most of his films in that sense. It's a very dark picture, right? Um, The cinematographer, Tom Stern, um, I was listening to Podcasty for Me. And they've done a thorough, comprehensive look at Eastwood's career. Their podcast is solely dedicated to Eastwood. And they pointed out that his career can be looked at as a director in two major phases. And they're very much about moving away from a- auteur theory, um, looking at you know film as a collaboration, the sort of Pauline Kael pushback to auteur theory, right? That like, it's this huge sweeping thing and we ascribe way too much power to the director. It is a very patriarchal type of vision, whether it's a female or male, I don't care about the genders, but a very like monolithic notion of art that's being made by like hundreds, if not thousands of people as the product of one individual, um, often who doesn't write the thing, who doesn't edit the thing, who doesn't score the thing and so forth. So they were looking at it in a way that was antithetical to auteur theory and noting some of the common you know, technicians and workers that are on Clint Eastwood films. And they noted that there, his two s- cinematographers really have um, distinct styles that you can see. And here we have Tom Stern, right? And he is great at chiaroscuro lighting, right? This very shadowy, dark noir-ish feel. And uh, Ebert has a great paragraph in his four out of four star review. So the critics absolutely adored. They ate this thing up, right? And in some ways, you got to understand like when this came out, I remember eating it up as well. Uh, The tragedy, I think, was actually sold well. A few prominent critics thought that it was misleading in the way they promoted this film to make it seem like a Rocky, but I think that was one of the real tricks that it had up its sleeve is that you were going into the cinema thinking you were going to see just a Rocky movie. And While it might end anticlimactically in the last half hour, it's kind of a shock to your senses, and I think it was very effective at the time to suddenly be turned into this like weird ethical scenario of like euthanasia and ableism and like all these topics. I mean, this this film caused a a huge controversy, right? The, The disability communities went to town about this because they felt that it was blasphemous in sort of endorsing the will willed and willful and, I guess, compassionate murder of someone who's a paraplegic for the sake of their life is no longer worth living. I feel like within the framework of the film, it it's fine because it gives the character agency, right? Um, it's a little overwrought. It's a little melodramatic, that's for sure. <laughs> this thing is very melodramatic. And Clint Eastwood, to give him respects, has one of the greatest comebacks when they brought that Cultural firestorm up to him. He says it's a film about the American dream, which I feel I don't know what his uh, tone was when he says that, but when I'm hearing him, right, I feel like it's this great quip, just like extremely cynical and sardonic, and such a beautiful response. But in Ebert's review, there was one part where he describes, as you brought up, the cinematography, and he he describes them driving home from when they they meet Hillary Swank's family for the first time, and. I absolutely adore this paragraph. And he says, instead of using the usual dashboard lights that mysteriously seem to illuminate the whole front seat, the viewer should watch how he has their faces, meaning Clint Eastwood and Hillary Swing's faces, yeah, slide in and out of shadow, how sometimes we can see them in appearances only halfway, sometimes not at all, and sometimes we can only hear them. Watch how the rhythm of this lighting matches the tone and pacing of the words as if the visuals are caressing the conversation. Um, and he notes it's a dark picture, many night scenes, and the gym is always cast in shadow. It has almost like a, a renaissance or like a medieval look. It's very painterly and gorgeous. It's a gorgeous picture, I think. It, there's a deep, is it Catholicism that that uh, Eastwood's character is steeped into? I don't know the exact denomination, right? But he has this very corny and poorly done also leitmotif motif throughout where he has these I felt like they're straight from like a sitcom type type thing where he's suddenly talking to the priest and they're supposed to be funny. Mm-hmm. And I somehow developed this theological underpinning and I, I, they all missed the boat for me. That's another part of the film that I really did not vibe with. I felt like that should have been edited completely out. It was an mm-hmm. utter distraction, thematically incoherent, comedically dead on arrival, and just tonally uh, dissonant from everything in the film. I really, I really hated those parts. But, um, th- anyways, there is a theological underpinning, and it feels like a lot of like those Gothic Catholic type artworks, even like Goya or something. I'm mean, again maybe getting too far into that world, but like there, there is this this morbid and moribund. A lot of yellows and greys in the color saturation, and I, I really was drawn to that as I watched this film. So. Uh, it's a mixed bag at best for me. It It isn't a complete wash in any way, but extremely and supremely overrated uh, because of how incredibly celebrated it was, not only when it came out, but I found that it's recently as 2017 A.O. Scott called this the third best film of the 21st century which absolutely blows my mind. What? I, I couldn't believe what I was reading, uh, but I'm going to pivot. I'm going to try to put myself into their perspective really quickly. And I, I read his defense, as you should, right? And who cares at the end of the day too? I, I get excited when I see something like that. It, it's almost like a, a deep take. You know, it's a rogue maverick opinion. Yeah. As long as they're not just trying to purely troll us, then I want to hear you out, right? And it felt authentic. It felt like he really felt it was a classical Hollywood movie. And then I started to see it really me back to Shawshank Redemption, which is like the dad movie of all time. This is a very dad movie, a very like Sunday afternoon movie. It, it reminded me of like the Green Mile a lot, right? It's a tearjerker. I was very affected by the Green Mile as like a teenager when I watched that in, in films. You know, a weepy, a classical weepy that has... Casual banter throughout that is witty. There's a lot of wit. It's it to me, it's overwritten. But people who like writing, it's a very written film, right? There the dialogue is rich. There is some refrains that come again and again. There's these very oratund lines, right? Like everything in boxing is backwards, is something he repeats again and again. And there's some cool, nifty little riffs on that, where you know the best way to deliver a punch is to step backwards. Or if you want to go to your right side, you actually push off from your left foot, right? And they're showing Hillary Swank as a waitress, even in her montage sequence of training, where she's working at her job. And you know the magic of boxing. He says at another point, right, is that you're fighting something that goes beyond cracked ribs and detached retinas. It's the magic of risking everything for a dream nobody else sees. I'm just saying that he has this very sweeping, grandiose type of of both Oscar bait and audience pandering verbosity that that wins like hearts and minds, right? It's the stuff that really hits you. I thought that like an A.O. Scott might be above that, but he did recognize that like that was what was going on. I even feel like Ebert did a bit and they just ate it up. They just like, I felt like it was for them like this this reminder of like formulas can be rich and good. And there was this odd lack of embarrassment for loving this film wholeheartedly that I found kind of shocking and kind of surprising. And Mm -hmm. so what fascinated me about this was not that they put it there, but how it's changed. I really got a sense of the, you know, the, the coastal elite critics on like the New Yorker, the New York critics, the Chicago critics, the LA critics, in this period of time, did not have as unique and singular of top 10 lists as they do today, right? Every critic today has like a very personalized list where everyone's kind of knows the game, to me, in my opinion, and it, and they all kind of want to have like a a unique sort of thesis in their in their top 10 list. Like, I mean, David Ehrlich's list is very different than Bill Gates Berry's list. And, right. and you watch so many movies, you become your own thing, you know? I think it's a great thing. I love the proliferation of distinct lists in that sense. So, the only thing that's boring with this is like the homogenization of them, which Mm -hmm. we get with the Oscars, which is all statistically predictable at this point. And it's odd though, because the culture kind of just forgot Million Dollar Baby. But a year later, Crash won Best Picture. So, we have the double punch from Paul Haggis. And people absolutely despise that film retroactively, right? That's like the most reviled Best Picture winner. And everyone lets this one off. Scotch-free almost. like No one complains about the fact that Million Dollar Baby won. How do you personally think about that in relation to Crash, this film, Million Dollar Baby, right? When you think of those two together and how they're remembered. Have you seen Crash recently? Do you Uh, think it's dated? And do you think in some ways all of our ire has been so focused on Crash we forgot Million Dollar Baby in this like retroactive grading of the films? Yeah, I think
1: what, what you're getting at with million dollar baby is that there are enough things to cling on to and appreciate mm-hmm. and adore about the film where it almost you know it's like we're trying to convince ourselves that it's a better movie than it actually is and that goes to the cinematography that goes to the some of the edits are strange this movie but there are certain shots right like the near the end in the, in the in the hospital room where he's like in the hallway and there's all these portraits and glass framed photos on the wall and everything is kind of mirrored and it's almost like a black hallway like there's no lighting that shot was pretty powerful and kind of stays true to, to a lot of eastwood's films as you were alluding to right this the grizzled vet themes of regret also, mm-hmm. uh, which is like a common, almost invariable Eastwood trope, something that happened in the past that has haunted the character. I'm mean, even thinking about In the Line of Fire, which Wolfgang Peterson directed, but right, he plays the Secret Service guy who should have saved JFK on that assassination day and it can't get over it, right? So now he's going to catch Malkovich. And, and here it's also that because we get the whole backstory with Morgan Freeman's character and how he got that glass eye and how he became blinded because you know he didn't leave him in there for that little fight where he had a chance to to battle it out. So these kind of things that he clings on to in, in his narratives do repeat themselves in this movie. And to look at Crash in comparison, it is an interesting exercise because they feel like two totally different films in a way, both very manipulative. Mm. And, and and that would, I think, be the, the most negative word or aspect I'd, I'd use for both films, that there is a sense of how we we need to feel about these characters and who they are and how everyone's sort of a caricature and what I disliked I think the other part of a million dollar baby I came out I was like for the first half of the movie I'm like what city are they in um there's no sense of place and often in boxing movies it's the place that makes the people right it's the place that gives it character and liveliness I even think back to a small interlude in Soderbergh's Out of Sight, where we go visit Don Cheadle's boxing ring, um, where he has a cool little Detroit montage. The music is kind of like that Motown, and automatically, even though it's a two-minute, three-minute scene, I know where I am. And in this film, it almost feels like they're like staging it. They're like in a in a play in a warehouse because most of the film is shot at the boxing gym, and yet I'm not r- really sure, you know, what the texture and and what the sort of diversity or, or, or the uh, makeup is of the people who attend the gym, right? We have Michael Pena, uh, I'm not sure who he's, he's supposed to play, maybe like a a, so- a Mexican person from, from SoCal or something. And uh, we have Anthony Mackey. So again, he has like these caricatures of these racial stereotypes in a way that he's throwing into a movie. And then as the film goes on, we, oh, there's palm trees. Okay, are they in Miami? And then you see LA, you see downtown LA. But again, it's like only used for a couple shots and it's in the background. I, I disliked I feel like using the city and maybe perhaps setting it in LA was a mistake to begin with, right? Uh, somewhere more gritty or perhaps realistic. I, I don't know. Maybe it made sense that Swank left her small town. I, I do like that quote of halfway between nowhere and, and goodbye or something <laughs> yeah. that uh, Morgan Freeman says
0: that's catchy. I like that you said catchy because I feel like that is where the screenplay pops, right? It it, it could be catchy at times, right? There there's a melodic quality to it. It's like a pop song, but like a pop song, it dilutes and glosses over. For me, the the details of a Malou, as you're bringing up, that are completely absent, and I'm quite confused. Like they must be outside of LA somewhere, right? Because like they drive after she gets the injury back. And then her family visits her in the hospital and they're going to Disneyland and Universal Studios, which is definitely LA. But she's also supposed to be a hillbilly from like West Virginia or wherever. I don't know exactly where I forget. They bring that up. Yeah, Missouri. Missouri. Thank you. As you so eloquently brought up, this is at the period where Oscar had this fetishism of a quote unquote hillbilly culture, which is funny because we have hillbilly elegy that came out a few years ago and immediately was panned. And it was just as good as all those movies. And that shows how the zeitgeist flips, right? The zeitgeist has flipped on a lot of these things. And I'm not going to say it won't flip back, but right now, right, we have soured. So we should be aware of that uh, for better and worse. You know, we're less charitable naturally to these things. But I-, I thought the same thing as you. There's a scene where Danger, right, which is the Jay Baruchel character, leaves. And Morgan Freeman, who's Eddie Scrap on, right, they call him Scrap runs out after him and he's on the street for the first time almost. And I'm like, "Where? where is this movie? Who are these people, right? And you're introduced to all these characters as caricatures, as you're saying, right? You don't even get a real backstory. The most we get is like an outline of even deeper stereotypes, as we've noted, which is why we're kind of confused. I'm glad you remembered Missouri, right? But to me, they were so broad. I didn't care to really remember these details because they felt so fabricated. There's a sense of this film as... A stage play, right? It's a very, uh, it's a chamber piece, right? It's all, it all takes place almost in one setting. I mean, it, it moves around a little, but almost the first half of the film is all at the gym. And I think that also kind of is a good way to think about why this works and doesn't work. I think a lot of people, I think, fell for this movie in the same way that they love Death of a Salesman. I like Death of a Salesman, it's a classic, right? This feels like a classic in that sense. It has a literary quality to it. I feel like Paul Haggis was very literary with his screenwriting, um, with his narrative gimmickries, uh, and so forth. I mean, everyone in here has a cute nickname, right? Uh, we have Big Willie, we have the Blue Bear. Everyone in the gym, these are like side characters I'm bringing up, is given a nickname, which I find funny. Hillary Swink is Maggie, even though she's Margaret Fitzgerald. Maybe the best though, actual sense of identity or belonging is the whole Irish subplot with the Gaelic Motif throughout, right? And I did like that. The whole, um, I, I, how do you pronounce it? Mo Mo-chusley? How do you how do you pronounce it? Do you know how to pronounce that Gaelic line? That's pivotal. I should not botch this, but that sounds right. Okay. I mean, it's my darling in my blood, right? And that it, also well, has a nice punch, what? Yeah, Mo mo So the hard, I hard. I should know this. I'm Irish, so <laughs> now you're on my part. But no, like that worked well, as you said. The whole between nowhere and that line works well, right? These refrains, um, you brought up the Anthony Mackie, Morgan Freeman scene, which was bad. But after he knocks out Anthony Mackey's character, right? Shawrell, who I thought they underused, I thought he was going to be the perfect counterpoint because early on, they describe him as someone with a ton of talent and zero heart. You know, someone who's misusing their talent. And then we have Hilary Swank, who's all heart and no real talent. They never really go anywhere with that. Michael Peña is nobody in this film as Omar. I love Michael Peña. I see him. Maybe that's a problem of like, we know who he is so much now that we expect more and this is early on. He hasn't done some of his like end of watch films, right? I love end of watch. It's a great film. Great role. Um, I even loved A Million Miles Away. I just watched it. It's very, very broad biopic as well. But he's a good actor. He's a heartwarming middle brow actor that's always reliable. He's a nobody in this film. And that's fine. There there can be like small characters on the side like that, but it it felt like everyone was like you said, a caricature. But going back, when he knocks out Anthony Mackey, right? He has a great punchline because he says earlier that you know, he has when he's giving his big uh, confession to to Maggie, and I'm talking about Scrap, Morgan Freeman's character about how, you know, Frankie Dunn, who's Clint Eastwood, has regrets and guilt because he let Freeman fight back in the day. <laughs> But when he's giving that backstory to her, right, he, he talks about the, he's at the 109th fight and a boxer never knows when their last fight is. And he, and then when he knocks out Mackie, right, he's, he's like, says something along the lines of like, I guess I got the 110 after all, or something like that. And it's a good mic drop, it's, it's, it's fun, but it's not like highbrow writing there. <laughs> it's a good sports movie, you know, punchline. And I feel like a lot of this stuff, if it was just like a sports movie, it's fine. What is creating so much cognitive dissonance is highly unfair, but it's like, I don't understand why this was the chosen film. Besides the fact that like Eastwood was just on fire at this point after Mystic River, like he was just the prize boy. I mean, everyone in this film, maybe was just the hot item, right? As we said, Swank's previous role, she won Best Actress for, she won again here, Best Actress. So you're getting Morgan Freeman at a time that I don't think we were as jaded Towards him, like not that we've turned on Morgan Freeman, but he's played out. Like he doesn't have that that hot commodity in a film anymore, right? He's underused in my opinion nowadays. I, he's such a good actor that people should really play him against typecast, and I think he would have a revival. But that doesn't happen enough. Anyways, if I think about this film, right, it's hard because I like Trouble with the Curve. It's a perfect to me juxtaposition or counterpoint to think about because it's another Clint Eastwood sports film, shot in similar lighting. But that to me was a normal, routine, perfunctory movie that was highly enjoyable. And it was allowed to be that. And I guess this is just like the sweeping praise that was heaped upon it adds to this unfair response that I'm having. Because I do think that as a sports movie, it, it, it does some things within the formula that are interesting. It is uber tragic in a way that is unique. I, I get that uh, you know it became its own cliche for sports movies not to end happily. But I mean this can't couldn't be any darker, right? Where it gets into this like almost Peter Singer, if you know that <laughs> philosopher who's really into kind of hardcore utilitarianism. Um he has some very tendentious opinions about how much resources we give to certain populations, like disabled populations. He wants us to think in ways that consider the the whole, the macro picture of the whole world and how other people are starving, for example. I don't want to get into that, but this movie actually opens up some of these really dark, morbid questions. But I think it also eschews all that in a very savvy way, because it really comes down to just a human story about one character, that person's experience and their dramatic journey and their their personal tragedy, and their their own right and uh, autonomy and personal choice to to not want to live a certain way. I, it comes down to that. It's like if you take this as an example for the whole then you enter that whole other problem which is where the whole social commentary comes out of everything. But if you take it like on its value as a film, does it work well with the story it's given? Is the story conceivably authentic to a possibility of life? Does this make me reflect on my own life does it make me think about ethics and morality in certain ways? Yes, yes, yes. If your answer is yes to all those questions, then you don't have to turn it into this sort of hot button thing. And so I think that stuff doesn't really bug me at all. But as I've repeated, I'm becoming redundant now. For me, it's overrated. So never before I don't think I've I jumped on the gun on our overrated underdog rating system duality. So I've said it. I've, I've gotten my, my two cents there. I want to hear yours on that, you know, you've not you've been here before. It's your fourth time. Where do you put this? An overrated film or an underdog film?
1: Yeah, I'm overrated for sure. I'm with you on that boat and it's it's nice to come on podcast as a guest and talk about a movie in a neutral or negative manner. I feel like so often when I do come on as a guest, it is to commend a film and celebrate it and, and lobby for it. Um, but it's also nice to discuss why we dislike things, right? And and, and why we have issues or, or or questions or reservations with other films. And, and especially, you know, it's easier to go after the Oscar winners because so often they are kind of uh, forgetful or, or ridiculous. And you have to understand the context within which they're awarded. But for sure, the, this movie, I think, falls in line with that. And... uh in many ways I commend the fact that it is an anti-sports movie it is very subversive in that regard it, and it's very bleak it's almost I think we're supposed to think that there are there is a breath of not fresh air necessarily but some kind of resolution at the end of the film within which you know Eastwood gains a certain perspective that he didn't have before and and, and the film proceeds and in many ways the the movie is about ghost-like figures and father figures The ones that exist and the ones that don't the absence of and 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 the lack thereof and and that's uh that's another Eastwood thing that goes back to pale rider the something that was kind of magical and uh unique about that film and 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 really had a revelatory effect on the western genre but this film just felt like a a rendezvous between two actors who did really well together and unforgiven another best picture winner and, and a far better film than this but what Unforgiven had, in addition to so many of those uh, philosophical discussions about the past and uh, being grizzled old vets in a, in a young man's game and a, in a different world in a changing time, what that film had was a certain energy with every side character and with every casting choice. There, There was a there's a certain chutzpah or mojo that, you know, we think about Gene Hackman or Little Bill, the film is just oozing with a spirit and and a vitality that this film isn't necessarily going for, but at the same time, it, it lacked that vitality when, when it sought it. And it mm-hmm. sought it from, we talked about the Mackies or the Bear's Shells the world or Michael Pena. You have three talented actors here who are almost asked to do too little. Are there uh, holding back from the things that make them so good that we know them for now and Hilary Swank really had a a great run of movies during this time but it's funny to look look at her filmography after this and it's kind of like she does a Western of the Homesman, but and it's a lot of rom-coms um it's almost as if you know Hollywood saw through this right that okay you did well in this drama role but we're not necessarily going to cast you in uh these kind of I don't know, procedural films or these high wire acts that kate winslet is getting or someone else but i, I really liked insomnia actually i, I think hillary swank's at her best when she's kind of playing a small town cop and in fact she did a show a couple years ago on fox or something with uh, was a ryan felipe that was basically like insomnia a knockoff insomnia mm-hmm. but um, as far as nolan movies go you know the film twitter will lose their tail off for uh tenet but insomnia is the real gem in his filmography and it is a true masterpiece to some regard but this film I think it's overrated for the things that it tries to stand out in and and Mm -hmm. and that's what pulls it back I I just feel like uh I'm fine with it being an anti-sports movie or a bleak movie or a dark movie We're we're used to that and most movies have some aspect of that Mm -hmm. but it it didn't feel to, to your point with the Catholicism and, and the Christianity aspect it, it, it really didn't feel earned or it didn't make sense and, it, and it, for me it didn't land I guess mm. his catharsis towards the end of the movie felt like it just kind of happened and, it, and I didn't really care one way or another I didn't really right. understand what he was getting over or why um and maybe that's you know to my detriment or loss but you know I I like Clint I think when when he's he's better at being a little bit more traditional and perhaps when he's trying to do less in, in a movie i i feel like when, when he's going for whatever this film ends up veering towards in, in the in the latter third of it i think he struggles and i think there's like like almost too much going on right and and that's why i think freeman is doing so much narration in this movie it is to kind of add that center of energy or or this uh certain all knowingness and i think you mentioned omniscient quality which freeman adds and has to the film but you know in a script that wavers so much you need something to rein it in and i feel like having freeman there is um om- is also a cop out in, in many ways you can't just rely on narration to try to reel in a story um and and, and the way it's told yeah i mean a shocking best picture winner in many ways, but also very in line with with the Oscars. Uh, also, yeah.
0: a lot of them are shocking at this point, right? <gasps> right. That's a kind of like yeah. one of the the common themes is that taste changes. I mean, more interesting than like. And I've done this. I'm completely guilty of this. This whole podcast, right, is being like indignant or aghast about the fact that we once thought this was an amazing film, right? just find it interesting, right? It's just, it's, it's like a curio. Like, I mean, in the sense of like cultural curio, in the sense that our taste changes. So like, what were we thinking back then? Can we get back into that headspace again? Or can we get back into that sentimentality, right? Because this is a very, it's a very mournful movie. It's very plaintive. Um, The twangy guitar, the softness of tone is, it's like a lullaby in some ways, as sad as it is. There's something very comfortable about the film, that is somewhat refreshing right there's a simplicity and a directness in the storytelling which is common for eastwood he likes to do his one takes and he likes to keep his stories crisp and clean he doesn't want to give too much backstory doesn't want to do too much character work i read he wants to leave that to the audience which makes sense so that's there um but i think i come down with you too like by the end right we have assisted suicide that's how this film ends and okay is this going to be a, a a cultural like argument, right? Is this like a, a film that's trying to like push for this politically? You don't get the feeling of that, right? Which is why the film stands up and when people, you know, try to create a backlash against it. Okay, so then how does it work within the framework of the film? Right. And we didn't even bring up the whole parallel storyline of Clint Eastwood's character's daughter, right? It's a huge part of the film, right? Because he, his daughter he's sending letters to and she's not responding and they had a falling out, right? It's a, it's another trope. We've used that word a lot here, right? It's another cliche. So Maggie becomes his surrogate daughter. And you get this idea that he is such a tough ass, right? he's such a Grinch, that he probably pushed his daughter away from him in real life. And in some ways, he's holding on to that for lack of a better word, toxic masculinity, right? That sort of patriarchal arrogance. And he has to slowly let his guard down, right? And she has to win him over, right? She is this steadfast, innocent, optimistic, provincial character, right? And she comes in with just total belief and conviction in herself against all odds and an unwillingness to take no for an answer, right? She's kind of like a puppy dog she has to win his heart. And that does work, right? They become a nice father-daughter unit by the end. There is that character arc. But I wanted that shift to mercy, right? Because she asked him to do an impossible task. And the only reason why the priest's subplot isn't unpardonable is that his interaction at the very end, where the, the priest tells him he will never get over the act of assisted suicide if he goes through with it. And then he goes through with it and the film doesn't even try to defend it, I thought was a very brave move. I do. I think that move is very brave. But I wanted a better foreshadowing of this arc and a better narrative foil, like a framework that both showed how in the beginning he had the inability to show such mercy or to overcome his own psychic turmoil to do something selfless, as impossible as that might be. And to bookend the film with that dramatic arc, I felt would have maybe made this film hit its climax like in in a more resounding way. And I feel like it missed the boat there. And that's where I was left a little bit on a, on a whimper note. And then, like, I'm just thinking about, okay, they're throwing in Yates and the cabin. And there's all these, like, like, I brought up literariness, right? But it's just all these literary cliches to me as well. And I guess my last, like, kind of low blow is that, like, 90% of critics are, like, English majors. And I feel like they're just all googly eyed eating this stuff up. It's a molly coddling of the English major <laughs> inculcation of, of certain signposts and stuff. So great discussion. Yeah, the other thing I was going to add about a million dollar baby,
1: the last thought was like it's a $30 million budget. So at that time, it's probably like $40 million if you adjust it for inflation. But like, where the heck were they using that money? I mean, it's just literally one set. It's like a warehouse gym, boxing gym. Hillary Swank couldn't have cost that much.
0: Morgan Freeman might have cost a pretty penny, though, to be honest. Maybe. You know, I'm trying to think. It's always hard to shoot, uh, as Bilga said in our Ferrari episode. A sports scene and there's some boxing scenes they got to pay for all those extras um so those are hard those do cost a lot of money even though they're pretty low stakes boxing right. matches um for anyone who wants to seek it out check out untold and listen to our episode right deal with the devil because that's also like a female boxer from west virginia like a mining town who's playing in these kind of small matches and then she ends up with don King. perfect actually influence of this film i don't know if it was but a really nice double feature to that but, but that's a great question what's equally crazy right is on that 30 million budget you know how much this made
1: so it was over 120 or over that right about uh, 200 was it 200 216
0: insane insane I mean... D- different era right like that that itself is very noteworthy one another thing Bilgo brought up i think he liked boys in the boat specifically because it felt like a film huh. that we no longer make anymore and we were we were actually excited about the fact that i don't know how much it made but it did re- relatively well probably like 50 million maybe and it it is almost equal quality to this in my opinion it's a pretty solid little sports film yeah we just don't go out to those anymore so much so yeah this is a huge hit it's a huge huge hit wow yeah and it's yeah. like the the female boxer angle of that right mm-hmm. obviously that's you what know, makes it stand out but also which yeah. is fascinating right because i think a lot of people went to this film really as this like kind of like big feminist film right it's about the female boxer mm-hmm. In a male dominated sport. And the film is playing on that in the first act, but it really goes somewhere different. It really turns into this much darker thing, which I actually give it props for that. Sorry, I interrupted you as I brought that up. up. No, the, the last thing I was, I was gonna mention
1: was that I was at Sundance and mm-hmm. two of the movies that one of the movies I saw was the Christopher Reeve documentary, which reminded me so much of that. Mm-hmm. I and mean, I was like, I was like, oh man, this again, like you know, the, the paraplegic kind of struggle fest. I was like, I was shocked that the million dollar baby went that way. That was recalling memories of uh the christopher reeve thing where you know he did things in his personal like he did that commercial where now you can walk or something
0: i got a lot of ridicule at the time but i yeah. didn't ask this i'm very curious was this your first watch of million dollar baby yeah first full full watch oh yeah. wow okay yeah yeah yeah, yeah
1: no because i saw one best picture i'm like I ha- this would be a great pot to do it on mm-hmm. yeah uh, great
0: choice by the way yeah so and so like, I t- no, so I had the the duality of like I watched this in it, I remember in theaters. Mm-hmm. And so it was a bit I was just had that disconnect or that uncanny sensation of like, hmm, this is this is aged. It's aged <laughs> yeah. in unique ways, you know what I mean? Um Yeah, my, my girlfriend was the same way. She's
1: like, I loved it when it came out, and she's like, I'm kind of coming around where and like we disagree a lot in films. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's like, I'm coming around to where you are on this. And I'm like, I'm not feeling it as much. Like it's kind of eh. But it, yeah, it does feel like after she gets injured, I think the movie had me. I was like, okay, fine. It's, it's, a, it's a good movie so far. Mm-hmm. But then after that part, it was just like leaning into the the hillbilly parents, family again, and then more scenes like you're saying, like the relationship with the pastor or the priest are like terrible. There's supposed to be like this hostility between them and uh, this give and take and that, that, that whole energy is just complete wor- worthlessness. Funny point
0: is I forgot about the whole tragic turn. I didn't realize it until the first scene where she buys the house for her mom. And I'm glad that you gave a shout out to Margot Martindale. Amazing in this. Shout out to BoJack Horseman. (laughs) She's a great character in that. Yeah, she's good. Iconic. I want to see her in a celebrity death match with Anne Dowd.
1: Oh I, yeah, that's what right. I was thinking. I was like, those two are, have been up for the same role for like thirty years. Kathy Bates gets all the roles, but those
0: two are like uh, next to duking it out. Also, like for me, I think another celebrity death match I thought a lot of this one was Jennifer Garner versus Hillary Swank. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, they're more doppelgangers than I ever imagined until I watched this film for some reason. Um, but I didn't realize to go back until that halfway point. I said, "Holy crap!" I had the picture of Margot Martindale. Walking down the hallway wearing the Mickey Mouse shirt seared suddenly into my brain again, and that was an insane moment where, like, it it was deep in my subconscious. I just didn't think about this film a lot, and you know, we quickly chose it again. So, I didn't, I wasn't even thinking about it until I was watching it, and then I said, Oh my gosh, this film goes there. So, whether that's over the top or not, it is a powerful moment because, like, I could picture that scene 30 minutes before it happened. So, like, the next middle period of the film I'm just like waiting for that scene to happen it's uh it's a very indelible little iconic image um totally exaggerated but yeah yeah and I just I
1: kind of like his because if you look at this movie and then the ones he made after which I haven't seen all of them but I also have like no interest in because they're not I I feel like I like the genre movies more like like I was saying right true crime Midnight in the garden of good and evil which I think is very adequate very pretty good movie Saw that recently for the first time. I remember when it came out, it was a big deal. But that movie has a sense of place in Savannah, Georgia. the The sense of place in that movie is the biggest character of it. Absolute Power, The Bridges of Madison County, A Perfect World. I really like his '90s run a lot. Like those movies are tremendous. I don't know what it is, but I feel like they just feel more fluid. It never feels um, like short, uh, shrifted. And maybe Paul Haggis is the issue. Yeah, with my dog. and there's a reason why Paul Haggis is kind of like okay makes crash which is probably the most faint most made fun of best picture winner ever
0: are up there i'm kind of an apologist for it too a uh, hot take uh, uh-huh. not a huge one but I, and i haven't rewatched it which is my problem so i'll never stand on a pedestal for that take or soapbox but i i've been dying to rewatch that one cuz i remember i you yeah. know as this film worked for me at the time that film worked for me at the time and so it's funny is i i like believe everyone but I'm a little hesitant because i remember enjoying it when i watched it
1: me too Thanks. i was the same way i liked it and maybe I'll, maybe i'll still um i could see myself liking it more than i want to lead on for sure because i remember it pretty well actually for being around that time but it was one of those movies like you were supposed to like as like a young guy right like this is the oscars they're giving it love and must be really good it's the only taste maker we can listen to but uh, have you seen next three days i have not but i that feels like a movie you'd like. It's like a really solid Pittsburgh m- movie, like yeah. a city as a character, and uh you know, like this preposterous plot that again doesn't get made now. And this is like this movie came out only ten years ago, I think, or eleven. But it's just like a solid. I'm not even sure what the equivalent is now, like Reptile with uh, Benicio.
0: Oh, I love Reptile. Yeah, I, yeah, I yeah. was kind of. I was on the campaign of let's give Del Toro a. Uh, no nah, why not? He's great in it. It's really good. I You'll like it. it. Yeah. It's got a, a, not on the level of Dragged Against Concrete, but a little bit of that, a little more by the book, Southern Gothic police thriller, solid film. Salt. Justin Timberlake's yeah. good in it. But yeah, the the next three days, the cover, I love the cover. Definitely a, like a 2010 cover, um, but I've not seen it. I've, I'll, I'll check that out and I'll tell Jordan too as well. You know, it's crazy yeah. too, is Haggis wrote Casino Royale and he wrote... Flags of Our Fathers and the story for Letters from Iwo Jima. So he worked with Clint for a bit there, not Casino Royale, but uh, yeah. And then, you know, Quantum of Solace, he wrote as well. So he got on the James Jesus. Bond. Yeah, he's a little weird career, very weird. And earlier I brought it up. He directed Red Hot in 1993. I don't know this film, I just came across it in my research. So it's another weird, like, deep cut. Uh, 1993 Canadian drama, and it's set in uh, I think Soviet Union time Riga, the 1950s. For any uh, fanboys out there, I think that's the one to check out to get started, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, oh, uh, what a cast, too! Yeah. Balthazar
1: Getty from uh, Lost Highway, Crazy. Uh, Car- Carla Gugino, who had Snake Eyes and Spy Kids, uh, Armin Mueller Stahl, and uh, Donald Sutherland. So he got some, uh I mean, Armin mueller star must have just been saying yes to every movie in the '90s. I think same with Donald Sutherland. But uh, what a strange cast, and it's set in Latvia, of all things. I'll check that out, maybe. Yeah, another but, funny uh,
0: connection, right? Is we talk so much about Michael Pena, and he was in Crash. He's a he's right. one of the main characters in Crash that I remember, and I feel like that maybe is was his first meaty role where he yeah uh, break up. Yeah. One of his breakouts. I mean, I, I pretty much only remember him, Don Cheadle, Sandra Bullock, and Matt Dillon from that movie. I know there's yeah. more. It's a huge film. Oh, Terrence Howard. Terrence Howard does that yeah. huge scene. Yeah. Thandie yeah. Newton. I mean, the, yeah. the cast, Brendan Fraser, right, yeah. is Sandra Bullock's husband or something.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, Ryan Phillippe, yeah, he, he, he kills the guy at the end accidentally or something.
0: And isn't his dad dying of cancer or like, I can't pee or something? Is Matt, that, D- like, Matt Dillon's dad. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you're, you're right, right, right. Yeah. Anyways kind of like goes
1: on the toilet and Mm -hmm. it's what a brutal like i'm not even sure what the equivalent of that film is but
0: um i'll I'll say i i saw it today origin i think origin in a weird way felt like (laughs) manipulative in the same ways but also like for me effective in the same ways and making a big sweeping commentary about race and with Uh, a tragic trauma infused deeply emotional tearjerker quality undercurrent so yeah and and I think
1: Michael Pena it I think he plays an Arab guy in the crash. Am I wrong or is he Mexican? In that? I, I think he's a
0: Mexican. I think he's a he's a, a locksmith, right? Yeah, he's a locksmith. Okay. And I think it's him or his daughter or someone in his family is wearing something in their shirt pocket that the bullet hits. So there's a, a like a serendipitous thing. I think that the whole movie is interlinked around, and it kind of comes down to this bullet not killing. I think him. Right, because it hit it's the whole Babel thing, right? Where the they have yeah. the gun in Morocco and it connects to Japan and then it connects to Mexico and all that. It's yeah. it's that era, right? It's the Syriana Amoros Peros. Amoros Peros. The tone right. too is very early in Uritu. Um so yeah, if you're on board for that, like real like suffering, heavy, pathos filled type, you know, early aughts, late nineties movies, like right it, it worked for you. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, thanks for coming on. As always, Matt, it was a blast. We could probably go on a lot about this. Maybe we'll we'll do something peripheral to it to give it a, a nice juxtaposition in the future. Maybe Girl Fight, the nice uh, film we didn't get to with Michelle Rodriguez. So where can our listeners find you? Um, you can find me on uh, Twitter at YagerWatch68. Uh,
1: his number just got retired by the Penguins. So it's a, it's a fitting <laughs> fitting uh, Twitter handle or X handle. Sorry, Elon. Um, and- uh, I'll post article links. I should have some interesting new stuff coming up in the, in the next few months, uh, writing-wise. And also, uh, I'll post my links to guest appearances on on podcasts and stuff like that. And you can search on Spotify also. The Unwatchables episode's a good time. Um, but I, I had a blast coming on here. And I would love to discuss Girlfight because, first of all, it's Karen Kusama's directing debut. And uh, I saw that at a QA and a at Nighthawk Cinema, I think twenty summer of 2018, she was there and her husband was there, who's often her co-writer, Phil Hay. Um, Girlfight does the things well that this film completely missed out on. And I feel like that's why it's so, so much more uh, superior in, in in just across the board. And, and uh, number one, I think it did have a sense of place. It was New York, it was Brooklyn, and it was the emergence of a star in in Michelle Rodriguez. She did a like a audition in Times Square to get that part. So um, I would love to come on if you want to do a girl fight pod because. Uh, love it. Perfect.
0: Yeah. Let's do it. Because, you know, I actually want to talk to the million dollar baby with Jordan. So I'll give him that homework so that he'll be able to jump in and give his two cents on this film. And I mean, it's it's I think for all the reasons you said, right, Michelle Rodriguez, just in the very first shot, she gives you these eyes that become her iconic stare, that, that stare of like repressed anger or like reserved anger. And it's taking from like, I think a sense of like kitchen sink realism, literally almost like so much of that film just takes place in a small apartment kitchen. Kitchen, Um, Yeah. yeah, Right. (laughs) But a real sense of place, a real sense of, of, of setting that this lacked. So uh, let's do that. We have a ton of a plan with Matt. Matt's, Matt's one of our favorites. So he's just like, whenever he wants to hop on, he can. Um, so for all our listeners you know seek him out and seek out all the episodes he's he's been on so much and i listen to them all cows in the field hit factory pod he always adds an extra to these already awesome podcasts who are all like we love so thanks for coming on and uh everyone enjoy uh the oscars i guess root for Niad. don't root for (laughs) Niad. But that's our, that's our one tie-in, right? Because I, I thought only King Richard was the last Best Picture nominee, I think, in the sports movie realm. I have to go dig that up. I'm curious. That was one thing I wanted to bring up. The, like, what were some of the Best Picture Sports Movie nominees that didn't win? But yeah, I guess Nyad is our, is our one <laughs> thing to champion this year. And I'm not going to jump on that boat or swim to Cuba alongside that. I don't know the, the metaphor there. Anyways, getting long here. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for listening, everyone. Peace.